What's up? What's up? What's going on, world? Welcome to my podcast. It's just different with Ty, where I talk about sports, social, political issues, you name it, everything under the sun. Make sure you like and subscribe to the channel and also leave comments in the section below. Hit the notification bell so you can get updated on all the newest videos coming to you because I'm coming with that fire. All right. Welcome to It's Just Different with your host, I have a very special guest with me today. His name is Mr. Gregory Butler. Greg, how you doing, sir? All right. How are you? I'm doing blessed. I'm doing blessed. I'm doing great. Uh, Mr. Butler, he is the author of a book that came out in 2006, I believe, um, called Disunited Brotherhoods, Race, Racketeering and the Fall of the New York Construction Unions. You see it right here. Very, 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 very great book. I just received it and I already read one chapter of it already and some parts of the second chapter. And I'm already mind blown with all the stuff, the information that he put in his book. No doubt about it. We're going to probably do a part two. We're, we're definitely going to do a part two and possibly a part three to this. My question, Mr. Uh, Gregory, is, this book came out in 2006, I believe. That's why, correct, yes. Why, why aren't there another book to this, man? There's so much information in this book. Well, Have you thought about write, writing a part two to this? You know, writing a book is hard, so it takes a lot of work. It took a lot of effort to write that. And I've thought about it, but it's something that it really takes a lot of effort. It took a lot of effort to write that also. I was working as a union carpenter at the time I wrote that. I've since moved on in my career. I'm no longer working in the trades. So I'm not as close to the material as I was at that time. And, you know, also, but the book, I think, still stands the test of time because the uh, a lot of the stuff I predicted was going to happen to the unions, unfortunately, came true. Mm. And until I talk about the fall of the New York construction unions, the unions in the New York construction industry and construction nationally are a lot. We and the labor movement in general, the private sector labor movement in general, are a lot weaker now than they were when I wrote that book almost uh, 17 years ago. And a lot, a lot of the stuff I predicted, unfortunately, came true. Unfortunately, and I regret that. I wish I was wrong. Unfortunately, I was right. Mm. Okay. 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 Now, when you wrote this book, since then, have you received any backlash from people, you know, just on you basically speaking your truth? And it is the truth from what I've read so far mm -hmm. on, you know, the book exposing different things and, you know, things of that nature. Anybody, you seen any backlash from that? I mean, not really. Actually, uh, because it's true, you can't challenge what I said because it's factual. Um, I think there were some people in the unions that were upset about it, but, you know, they got over it. And, you know, I wasn't, it, you know, it, it, I w it didn't really affect my career working in the trades. I wasn't someone who worked every day precisely because I was a militant and took being in the shop steward very seriously. And that didn't change afterwards. If anything, I worked slightly more after I wrote the book than I did before. So uh, there really wasn't any significant backlash other than maybe a few hurt feelings, which uh, I'll live with it. 
Okay. All right. Cool. 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 All right. So we, I, I got a few questions I want to ask, and I'm gonna get into it uh, with you as as it pertains uh, in this book, this great book that you wrote. Again, if you guys haven't got yourself a copy, please make sure you pick it up right here. All right. Um, this is a great book by Mr. Butler. One it's available th- on Amazon, so you can just go to Amazon, put in Disunited Brotherhoods by Gregory Butler, and you can get it. Correct, correct. And I highly recommend uh, everyone to get this book. You know, it's, it's like I said, I, I read, uh, like I just received the book the other day, and um, like I said, already, uh, already a chapter in, a chapter and a half in, I'm just mind blown by all this great information he did. He definitely did a great job of putting a lot of things out there and, and uh, coming with all this cre- uh, credible evidence and things and that. So one of the things I want to talk about, Mr. Butler, as it pertains to the unions and different things like that, um, from a, hmm, a, a, I noticed you talked about women and here in the sense of how when women were coming in, I guess, into the union, things wasn't fair for them. A lot of them was dropping out. There was a high uh, percentage rate of of women dropping out. And, you know, some of them were led to believe that they would achieve a certain amount of pay a year. And that seemed to be uh, not true. And I wanted you to talk about some of the things that women had to face with joining uh, the union and, and other different things of that aspect. Well, you know, for anybody getting into construction, hell, even if you're a white male, it's a job where it's a casual labor job. You're hired by the day. You can get laid off at any time for any reason, fair or not so fair. And a lot of who gets work is based on nepotism and connections or whose cousin you are, whose brother-in-law you are, who is, you know, who you're married to. And for anybody, it's an unstable job. It's not a steady job. It's also really easy to get injured in the construction industry. And if for people of color or for women of any race, there's also a long, ugly history of discrimination that dates back literally to the time of slavery. And also in construction, there's a long history of workers being treated very shabbily. One thing it's an industry where it is not unusual to go to a construction site where they've made absolutely no provisions to provide a bathroom for the employees, which is especially a hardship if you're a woman. There's also a lot of men in construction who resent or having women on the job. There's sexual harassment has been a persistent problem. And also the fact that it's not a steady job. It's, 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 it's like being a temp. And a lot of people end up leaving the industry when they figure out, you know, I could get a steady job that pays less per hour, but I know how much I'm going to make every week. And I know how much I want to make at the end of the year. And I can make, I can make economic decisions based on what kind of income I'm going to have for the year. I can go to a bank and get a loan for a mortgage or for a car based on them knowing how much I'm going to make. If you go, you're in construction, you have no idea how much you're going to make in a given year. And mm-hmm. ultimately, that's why I actually myself left the industry, because I wanted an actual steady job after 24 years of basically being a casual laborer. And that, I think, is accounts for the drug. That, in general, accounts for why people of any background would drop out of the apprenticeship. Plus the fact that 
over the year, the unions have been declining in the construction industry nationally and in New York over the last 50 years. So there's less and less union work. So a lot of times you might leave the union and go work non-union and the pay is a lot less, but you actually have a bit more stability. You know, you might be making maybe half what you were making in the union when mm. you're working, but the non-union people might have more steady work. So you might actually even have a job where you work for them more or less full time, but it's a lot less, but you know how much you're going to make in a year. So in general, it's not a stable job and the unions have never made a priority of making it into a regular job where you can actually count on it, <coughs> which it's never been. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Now I want to talk about something here that stuck out with to me, you know, um, as a black person. So you wrote in your book, it said the unions had long work. Oh, I'm sorry. Excuse me. The unions had long work to keep black, Latino and Asian men, you know, uh, minority workers were, um, were able to get in. So basically there was some type of segregation or something like that where the unions had this stronghold on not letting people of color coming in. Yeah. Yeah, there was a long history of discrimination and racial segregation in the unions and in the industry, not just in the South, but even in the North and pretty much everywhere in the country. Um, there was a long, long history of that. A lot of it was driven by the employers wanting to hire people from their own background. A lot of it was driven by the unions wanting to, the leaders of the unions wanting to take care of their friends and relatives, which tended to practice to be people from the same background. So it ended up being a system of de facto segregation that persisted for a very, very long time. And only in recent times has that system broken up, in part because of the collapse of the unions also led to a lot of the collapse of that system, unfortunately. Now, I mean, these days, the construction industry in New York is majority workers of color, but the construction industry in New York these days is a majority low-wage industry. So, yeah. Okay. It got integrated at the price of it being a cheap labor job. Wow. Wow. That is telling. That yeah. Is telling. And and you said just recently they start to break the barriers of that. Um, wow. Okay. About 50 years ago, about basically in the 60s, uh, during the civil rights movement, a lot of the barriers of segregation got broken down in construction. Plus also, during the civil rights movement, racial discrimination in the workplace actually becomes illegal. So suddenly it's something you can go to, you can take a record on and win. And also there were protests, there were organizations that fought to integrate the industries. There were these groups called the coalitions. They were these, um, I guess you could best describe them as armed civil rights groups that fought to integrate the industry in New York. One of the groups was called Harlem Fightback. It was founded by black communists in Harlem. There was another group, the Chinese Construction Workers Association, which was founded by Chinese-American communists in Chinatown. And they would have these protests where they would have a group of unemployed workers. Would Often in a converted school bus, they would go to job sites. They would drive around the city to job sites, march into the job sites, and shut down work until the contractor agreed to hire minority workers. And often they would have bats and chains and other such pipes with them. Uh, and it was quite clear that if they, if the job wasn't integrated, it would get very unpleasant. And 
That is what broke down all the barriers. Now, what the original people who led the coalitions, there was a man named uh, Jim Horton. There was a man named Wing Lamb. These men were radicals. These were far-left communist civil rights activists. Once they kicked down the door, there were a bunch of, like, neighborhood street guys, basically, like, gangsters who set up coalitions in various neighborhoods around the city. At one point, there were over 60 organizations, and they would also integrate job sites. And sometimes the contractors would hire them to, well, we'll have you guys, we'll have some of your members in the job, but we'll have you guys guard the site from the other coalitions. And this uh, went on from like the late 60s, early 70s into the early 2000s. And then, well, we'll get into this more in the next part. There was a broader crackdown on racketeering and gangsterism in the construction industry at the coalition that happened in the 2000, in the 1990s. And the coalitions got caught up in that because a lot of them were, to be honest, doing extortion. And the coalitions got kind of swept away. Some of them still exist, but you don't really have no, the protests like they used to have back in the day. But from the 60s, from like about 1966 to about 1996, coalitions going on job sites were a regular thing that happened. And a lot of workers of color who got the unions got in because coalitions and a lot of them ended up being carpenters and laborers because it's easier to get in those unions because basically if you can get a job with a contractor you can get in those unions whereas with the other unions they have a more elaborate process for getting in the union so it was harder to break down the barriers and that's why today actually a majority of the union carpenters and union laborers in new york city are workers of color of course it's in modern times, it's an industry that's much less heavily unionized. The non-union side of the industry is overwhelmingly workers of color, overwhelmingly uh, Latino, African-American, Afro-Caribbean, Chinese, uh, Guyanese, Indian. Um, also, there is a sizable contingent these days of white immigrants from Eastern Europe, Ukraine, Russia, Poland, uh, uh, Croatia. But it's the industry became a lot. They the coalitions desegregated the industry, and they played a very good role in that. Although in later years that changed when it became less about civil rights and more about labor racketeering, which has been a persistent problem in the industry during the course of the 20th century, which led to the in part to the collapse of the unions. Which we'll get more into that later. Mm. Man, I'm, you just coming with fire. Mr. Bell, I ain't gonna lie, you just coming with fire. You know, uh, like, yo, I gotta tell everybody, anybody who's watching, everybody who's watching, get this book. Get this book. Definitely get this book. And, you know, this is, wow, I'm just mind blown, you know. Uh, Thank <laughs> uh, Now, I noticed you talk about um, there's something called uh, I'm going to read this off and you can explain this style. The Carpenters Union also run a government financed minority pre-apprenticeship program called the Minority Worker Training Program where Black and Latino teenagers are brought in and, and trained to do lead removal, which is actually the work of hazardous material abatement laborers, not carpenters. And then you go and say these pre-apprentices um, 100% who are minority do not have the same status as their counterparts 
who are allowed to directly join the regular apprenticeship, 47% of them who white. Can you talk about that, sir? Well, that was a short-lived program that they were trying to save the unions by supplying union contractors with cheap labor and also supplying contractors who, whose employees aren't even members of the carpenters' union with a cheap labor alternative to abatement laborers. And the problem was that it was even cheaper for these companies to go non-union, so a lot of them just went straight up non-union. So that's kind of where the program fizzled out. So not that long after I wrote that book, that program uh, gradually faded away. Uh, I think there might be still some pre-apprentices, but the problem is that a lot of companies that would have been looking to hire lower-paid workers just decided to just go straight up non-union which at a time when much of the industry was going non-union and there was no longer, the unions no longer had the power to keep work union, uh, it basically was easier. If you, just, if you wanted just to pay your workers less, instead of having to go through a program like that, you could just go non-union and get away with it. So that yeah. ultimately what fizzled the program out was the fact that there was it supplying cheap... Cheap non-union labor was cheaper for the contractors than cheap union labor, in part also because the union workers still get benefits and the non-union workers do not. And that's a huge cost savings for the uh, for the employers and their clients. Mm. Mm. Now, I have a, I have a, a personal question. Well, not that it pertains to me, but this is something that is asked. Uh, or not asked, but it's something that I hear a lot from uh, certain friends that I know that are union members. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not going to say the name. Well, you know, I'm not, I, I'll just use them. I'll just throw it out there just for an example. All right. I'll just throw it out there for example. I'm not saying this is what I'll just, it's all examples. All right. So <laughs> got to put that out there. Let's okay. just say you have a black employee, right. Who, you know, um, a, a union brother, who belongs to, let's say, either, I don't know, CSEA or, or, or Teamsters. Let's just say, I'm just, I'm, just using, I'm just using it for an example. And let's just say um, there is certain things happening on the job to this Black employee where he is being discriminated against or retaliated against, whatever the case may be, and he goes to his union and the union is not responsive, which means they do not. They're taking your tides now. You know your 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 money. Your 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 not your tides. I say your 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 union dues. You know that you're paying for, and all these different things. The workplace environment is bad. Is he's this person is being harassed, and you go to your your union president, and your union president is basically not really trying to react. The union delegates is basically not trying to do nothing. Um, they're basically shunning it off and just, you know, letting it just, you know, basically turning it back on you. What do you do from that point on? Because I hear that a lot from certain guys I know that are in certain unions and they feel as to where their union is leaving them out and dry. What is the next step after your union president is not trying to address the issue or go to the municipality on why my uh, union brother is being harassed or, or racially discriminated against or retaliated against? 
Well, one of the, if, you, if your union is failing you, and unfortunately, one of the problems with the unions in America having lost a lot of power over the last 50 years is that unions often do a terrible job representing individual workers, particularly, you know, workers of color, workers, of, you know, are from specially oppressed, you know, categories of society. And they often do a terrible job. And it's often very difficult when you as an individual approach your union seeking help and they fail you and it's very difficult to fight that as an individual i mean mm -hmm. it's probably best to find out are other of your fellow workers in your union similarly affected have they had the same problems they had the same issue of the union failing them and to organize together to pressure your union to represent you and there's a number of ways to do that obviously attending your union meetings and bringing this up as a group going to your union leaders as a group, particularly if your leadership are unresponsive, perhaps even organizing to run for office in your union against the current leaders is a good way to do it. These things aren't easy. Not going to guarantee they're going to work, but are, they are definitely what I would recommend is find out if they're, because in unity there is strength. Find out if other people are facing the same situation, band together and figure out what you're going to do to fight and get in touch with other people who are labor activists people like me, people like you, and figure out what, and they can give you suggestions about what might work. Because again, it's something that you're, gonna, you're not going to automatically know what to do, but you can definitely research and find out and speak to other people who've been in that situation and see what they recommend. But yeah, I would recommend the short version. Get together with your fellow workers. Find out if you're the only one having the problem or other people are having the problem. And if others are similarly being, you know, suffering, come together unite and figure out how you're going to fight back. Mm. Okay. Okay. So some of my friends that wanted that, uh, wanted to know the answer, you heard Mr. Gregory Butler told you, you know, give you some info on how to move with that and, and what to do. Again, there's no guarantees, but definitely do your due diligence and, and making sure you continue to bring that to light. Um, now, I want to read this off as well. It says in your book, even in the trades and, and, you know, and you probably talked about it a little bit, but I, I still want to point this out because again, I, I am a black person. So I, you know, look at this, you know, look at these things first. Uh, you put even in the trades that were open to workers of no colors, um, blacks, Latinos, the iron workers, American Indians were at the bottom of the pecking order. Last hired, first laid off. Is that I know you wrote that book in 2006 and, you know, and it was you probably gathered a lot of information going back years before. Is that something that you see or maybe hear and and with um, that exists in the workplace of the unions where that's that type of system is still going on? Well, you know, I actually left the trades in 2015. So I'm not as immediately in touch with what's going on in the trades anymore. However, and also there's a lot less union work in general. So the general quality of union jobs has deteriorated. Um, is it still a situation where there are people are treated differently because of their background? And if you're a worker of color, you're less likely to work steady, less likely to have, and you tend to have a smaller annual income. On the whole, I would say, yeah, that's probably still true. Are also having to to get steady employment, having to seek out 
lower paying non-union jobs that don't have benefits because you actually would have a year-round income. And I would say discrimination on the whole, I'm sure I suspect strongly it's still a factor, although I should point out that I'm no longer immediately I'm no longer employed in that industry, so I'm not as I'm not as I'm not as close to that at first hand. But it certainly was true when I wrote that in two thousand and six. Okay. And it, you know what? And I'm going to go out on a limb and say it, it more than likely, all right, probably 95% that is still the culture that exists. I'm going to say it. I'm going to say it. I'll take the, the accountability for saying it. I'm going to say it. You, you know what? It. We still live in a country that has a strong, long-standing problem with racial discrimination, a long-standing racist history dating back to when the first slave ship landed here when the first Indian village was destroyed by settlers. So, uh, it is not surprising to expect you find to run into racism throughout, you know, throughout the country, in every industry. So it wouldn't surprise me if you'd still find it in the small section of the construction industry in New York that's still union, because mm. you find it everywhere else in the country. Mm. Okay. Okay. Great. Great. Now this plan and i know this was back then but i want to talk about it i don't know if it's even active still but again this is something that uh you know like i always tell people in 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 uh in order to you know the saying in, in order to know where you're going you got to know where you come from or you know know the history behind a lot of things so under the plan of the mayor's office of construction opportunity, what what is this this mayor's office of construction opportunity? I've never heard this before. That was a program that was set up way back in the past, I believe, during the Dinkins administration, as an effort to integrate the construction industry. And I think the question you're you're leading to is that there was an idea of integrating the construction industry in part by bringing in workers of color as a low wage labor force. That also was the thing behind it. It was at a time when, starting when Koch was mayor, uh, the city of New York had previously built all of every all the construction projects it funded had been built union. But during the Koch administration, a lot of housing construction started being done by non-union labor, particularly a lot of the housing renovation work and a lot of poor poor neighborhoods of color where there'd been a lot of arson during the 70s, a lot of that deliberate arson by landlords, a lot of the work with building that was done, had previously been done union, and it was shifted to non-union work. The unions made a short-lived attempt to keep that work union by agreeing to do it, by enforcing a pay cut on the union workers that did the work. But again, it was cheaper for the companies to just go outright non-union because there's no benefits on the non-union side. So they don't have to pay into the benefit funds, which are very, you know, that that adds a huge labor cost savings, not having a benefit funds cut. So the Dings administration idea was, well, you know what, we'll offer these companies, these uh, workers of color at a lower rate, and that will help integrate the industry. Well, that particular program is long gone. However, as the industry, as companies shifted from work from being union to being non-union, generally the workers they hired are workers of color. Uh, black, Latino, Asian workers and more immigrant workers in general, higher unemployment rate, uh, more likely to be desperate for any kind of job, particularly those workers who are undocumented, who are in the United States without a visa or a green card. They're often, and also a lot of black and Latino workers who are, you know, 
formerly criminally justice-involved people, ex-incarcerated people, parolees. They're desperate for a job. They have very little choice because not everyone's going to hire them. So you end up with a lot of workers of color desperate for work and companies looking for cheap labor. And who's going to take these jobs but workers who don't have a whole lot of other options? So as part of the deunionization of construction in New York and as part of construction becoming a low-wage, no-benefits uh, day labor job, not that only a few steps above doing farm work. Uh, it also became an industry that's overwhelmingly people of color. Uh, if you go around the city to construction sites today, and this is very different when, than when I became a tradesperson in 1994, 1992, the construction sites are a lot more, you know, black, Latino, and Asian, uh, especially Latino. And it's by and large a low wage job. So ironically enough, that particular program doesn't exist, but the long term objective of integrating the industry by workers of color being used as a low wage labor force, that happened. Didn't happen to the unions, it happened through demonization. And the unions did nothing to fight it because in general, and this is true in New York and nationally in the construction industry and in the private sector labor movement in general. As employers have shifted to using low-wage non-union labor, uh, the unions have done absolutely nothing effective to stop it. They, you know, they donate lots of money, campaign contributions to Democratic Party politicians. They spend lots of money on lobbying. Um, they spend lots of money desperately trying to curry favor with the employers to convince them that they should use union workers. But non-union workers get paid less do not have benefits, and more importantly, union workers have rights in a contract. No matter how weak your union contract is, you at least have some rights in the job. Non-union rights, non-union workers, very much like Dred Scott back in the days of slavery, have no rights that a boss is bound to respect. So employers, given their choice, would rather have workers who have no union at all. And unions trying to make givebacks to, or city governments trying to use programs to use workers as cheap labor it doesn't solve the ultimate ultimate goal employers want to workers with no rights and no benefits and paying them as little as they can get away with and they prefer to use workers who are from you on oppressed minority status especially workers who have immigration issues or workers who have a criminal justice history because those workers are more exploitable they have less ability to stand up because they have to take whatever job they can get and in the case of parolees, they're often legally required to take any job they get can get unless they get sent back to the prison. So, um, in general, I know I kind of went, you know, off on a tangent. You're in a question. Nah, but this is information that's needed for the people. Right, right. That basically, uh, workers of color and immigrant workers are often used as a cheap labor force because employers know they can often be forced to accept conditions that other workers, you know, are, you know, white American fellow workers who have more options don't have to necessarily take those jobs because they can get better jobs doing other things. Whereas a lot of workers of color and immigrant workers and workers who are on probation or parole have to take whatever they can get because they can't get just any job. They own certain jobs they can't get at all. So they have to take the jobs that will take them no matter how terrible the conditions are, no matter how bad the pay is, and no matter how few rights they have. Woo! It's fire, man. I hope y'all are listening. That's fire. 
Greg is going in. Mr. Butler's going in. He's going in on y'all. That's how I learned. That's what I do. You know? Um, Now, I noticed, and I didn't want to stop because, like I said, I don't like to stop. I want you to go on. I want you to, you know, give all the information you can. So I, but I noticed when I talked about this whole um, carpenter thing, I mean, not the carpenter thing, this, the, um, the, the, uh, the mayor's office of commission of, 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 of construction opportunity. And you brought up the ex mayor, mayor David Dinkins. Right. Who is a black man. Yes. Who basically co-signed or proposed something where I'm going to make sure I'm saying this correctly. If I'm wrong, please. Cause this is what I heard, but I, I just correct me, please. Mm-hmm. Who basically co-signed uh a, a bill or propose something that would intentionally pay black people less money? Um, essentially, yeah. And I'm not surprised <laughs> that because it, the, the Democratic machine in Harlem had it, which you would think it's the product of. He came out of it, spent his entire adult life as part of the Democratic machine in Harlem, the Harlem Clubhouse. Uh, they had a long history of their approach to integration and affirmative action was for us to be coming in at a lower status and not fighting for us to get the same terms of and conditions of employment, the same benefits and pay as our, you know, our European American brothers and sisters get, but to be us still to be oppressed, but employed to get in the door as second class citizens and actually the same Harlem machine was later actively involved Subsequent to me writing the book, they were actively involved in gentrifying Harlem. They were actively involved in uh, enabling real estate developers to buy city-owned abandoned buildings in Harlem and renovate them as luxury housing. In many cases, the churches that were involved with the Harlem Democratic machine, the churches in which many of the Harlem political leaders are pastors in, and the churches that run a lot of the not-for-profits in Harlem, especially the Abyssinian Baptist Church, and they're for-profit arm, the Abyssinian Development Corporation. That's the biggest church in Harlem. It's Adam Clayton Powell's old church. It's Calvin Butts' church. They were actively involved in gentrifying Harlem. That is why today Harlem is, Central Harlem is a majority white neighborhood today. It's become a much more affluent neighborhood than it used to be. A lot of Harlem's former residents live in the Bronx or in New Jersey because they can't afford to live in Harlem anymore. And the Harlem Democratic Machine was actively involved in making that happen, and many churches profited from that, or their for-profit development arms profited from that. In some cases, literally, the churches themselves were demolished, and the land under the church was sold for housing that was paid for with funding for low-income housing, but actually was luxury housing. And of course, all these all the demolition work and all the new building work was done by non-union low-paid workers who were overwhelmingly workers of color, Latino, African-American, Guyanese, Indian. And many of them undocumented, many of them also workers on parole. Wow. Mr. Butler, like I said, we're definitely gonna do a part two to this. Don't don't, don't you worry. But I got I, I wanna ask one more question. Sure. One more question. And, you know, like I said, we're going to definitely do a follow up within a week to this because this is so much information, so much information in this book. 
Again, disunited brotherhoods, race, racketeering, and the fall of the New York construction unions. You know, again, I keep on putting it up so people can get this book. It's a must, all right? Especially, especially if you're a union member, you need this book. It's a must need. Now, I always wondered, talking to a couple of guys that are uh, union members, and they would talk up and they would be, they would work for municipalities. And they would talk about how, again, whether if it's the mayor or whether if it's the city manager or whether, you know, the council, you know, uh, people that are in a position locally, I'm just talking to lo locally, people that are in a position of power and how they treat the union members. And I always said to myself, Again, just 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 it, it could be it. This could go to any union. All right? I just don't want to single one out. Just throwing out. I, I I always thought, why hasn't a union president again for saying just CSEA or Teamsters or something like that? When these union brothers come to me, why? And I always said to myself, why haven't the the union president said? or went to the mayor or the council and say, listen, we know every two years you're going to come to us and ask for us to endorse you, you know, for the election, but yet you are messing with our union members or you're, you're creating a hostile work environment or three or four uh, African-American workers are, are talking about racial discrimination and different things like that. And when I ask some of these union bro uh, uh, guys about these things, have your union president or your delegate say this nine times out of 10, they say no, which leads me to believe that either these unions, whether the president, whatever, they don't care or they're in somewhat in co cahoots with these political parties. Well, basically, in answer to your question, uh, them, the la I'll answer the last part first. Are they in cahoots with those political parties? Absolutely. Because you see, there's a political problem in the American labor movement that a lot of American unions have this viewpoint that instead of viewing unions as instruments of struggle to unite workers, to fight for workers' rights, and to have a vision of a society run by working people, which is what how unions are in most of the world outside of America, American unions have long been junior partners of the Democratic Party, dating back decades dating back to the Roosevelt administration in the 1930s and they perceive their relationship is that their priority is continuing their junior partnership with the Democratic Party which for some for many individual union leaders is a career path out of labor leadership into positions in the Democratic Party hierarchy and they prioritize that over the workers will they sacrifice the interests of their workers to preserve their relationship with the Democratic Party politicians? Absolutely, in a heartbeat, without a second thought. The workers are expendable, particularly low-status workers like workers of color, and their relationship with the Democratic Party machine is the priority. That's what they believe in. That is what they, that's what keeps the wheels going, and that's something that they, they want to keep, they want to keep that, and they will sacrifice you and abandon you without a second thought if it would in any way inconvenience the politicians that they have a junior relationship with, whom they fund their campaigns, they supply them with campaign volunteers, 
that are a source of patronage jobs for union leaders, that are a source of funding for American unions run a whole lot of these labor management programs and job training programs and private trade schools and all that. And of course, the vast apparatus of union private health insurance companies run by or funded through unions. Uh, the relationship with the politicians gets a lot of money for those programs. And those programs have an enormous amount of patronage jobs. America has some of the weakest unions in the developed world. But America's unions have an enormous apparatus of paid staff, over 125,000 people. American unions have a budget of $31 billion, which $31 billion in assets, which is more than the entire, all the trade unions around the world combined. However, uh, only about 6% of private sector workers and 34% of public sector workers have, even have a union. And you compare that to unions in countries like France, or countries like South Korea, or Italy, or Spain, or Japan, or even countries like China, or India, or even, you know, or Germany, or Sweden, or even countries like Mexico. Mexico has greater union density and stronger unions in the United States. Mexico and their unions have a more independent adversarial relationship with the employers and the government than our unions do. Because again, in most of the world, unions are run by socialists. Most union activists are volunteers like you and I. It's not something to make money. Unions aren't in the insurance business. They're not in the business of running private trade schools and apprenticeship programs. American unions, to a large degree, are money-making unions. That has a lot to do with the long history of racketeering in the American labor movement, where the racketeers use the unions to make money. And a lot of unions, to some degree, structurally still function as rackets rather than as work organizations of workers struggle. And also in most of, in pretty much every country in the world but America, unions are run by people who are some kind of socialist or communist or anarchist, but as a vision of a society run by working people, a society where there's no billionaires, no beggars, there's no millionaires, there's no working poor. Everyone has a decent income and a decent life. And we live in a society run democratically by working people. That is the vision of most of the labor movement in the world outside of the U.S. and Canada. The U.S. and Canada, you have a labor movement run by people who believe in capitalism, even though capitalism hurts workers. And American capitalism in particular was built on the kidnapping and enslavement of black people from Africa and the wholesale robbery and uh, genocidal war against the indigenous American Indian peoples of, of this country. And American capitalism is a particularly noxious form of capitalism, but American labor leaders believe in it. And pretty much everything that's wrong with the American labor movement, whatever you might want to say, ultimately comes from that. All right. I, I know I still have one more question, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> This is the last, but you know, it's like an added on. It's like an added on. It's like an okay. added on. I know unions, and again, that some of my friends belong to. Mm-hmm. And again, whether they're black, whether they're Latino, they talk about um, certain unions having certain coalitions. Whether if it's the uh, the black caucus, the Hispanic caucus. And this and that. And sometimes 
they talk about, hey, you know, when, when certain things are, are, are said or done to us, we call our union, our, our, our you know, Hispanic caucus or our black caucus of the union. And a lot of times, or majority of the times, they basically say it falls on deaf ears. So is that also, are they, the black caucus, are they also like in, in, you know, in cahoots with the political party? Like, is it all just big one, you know, thing going on where they're just out for the interest of them and, and their loyalty is not really with the union brothers? The short answer to that is yes. And the longer answer is that, well, yeah, they have, they're part of that same patriot relationship. And also the thing is, as the unions have declined in the private sector, American unions have become overwhelmingly public sector. 17% of the U.S. workforce are public sector, but 60% of union members are public sector. And one of the problems is, in a lot of places, including New York State, public sector workers legally cannot go on strike. It's very, it's a crime. It's punishable by law. It's called the Taylor Law, passed in 1971. So unions in the public sector have a lot less power than unions in the private sector do because in most places, including New York, it is illegal for public sector unions to go on strike. Even where it is legal for public sector unions to go on strike, it doesn't have the same impact that when the private sector workers and the profit-making private sector side of the economy go on strike where it directly costs, costs rich people a lot of money because you're stopping production. And as American labor has gotten weaker in the private sector, it's gotten weaker on the whole. And as the public sector workers are holding up the entire labor movement, despite not really having the means to fight back, there's limits to what public sector unions can do. In, you know, kind of a, not a defense of the leaders of the public sector unions, but in honest, I have to say, there's limited to what they can do because in New York, they can't go on strike. And even in places where they can go on strike, public sector unions have limited leverage. So a lot of the unions aren't in a position to do much more than lobbying, which, of course, they're only going to go so far because ultimately, in America, we have two political parties, but they're funded by a very small group of rich people provide most of the funding for both parties in this country. There's a small group of a few thousand rich men here in Manhattan, where I live, and in San Francisco and in Los Angeles, that small group of a handful of rich men, a few thousand rich men, they provide most of the funding for both parties. The Republicans and the Democrats answer to them. They set the agenda. That's why a lot of things that working people of all colors need in this country, we don't have. That's why we don't have national health insurance. That's why you can't go to college for free in this country. That's why we have a terrible social safety net. That's why we have people sleeping on the streets. That's why we don't take care of the poor in this country. That's why our main solution to mental health and poverty is to lock up poor people and mentally disturbed people in prison. That's why everything that's wrong with this country stems from the fact that a few rich men control both parties and the entire political process and working people have no political voice and 90% of American workers don't even have a union on the job. So most Americans have no voice at work and we have two political parties that speak for the rich and America, so the American people don't have any voice in, you know, from their elected officials or at the ballot box. So the needs of the average American, this is Americans of all races, but especially workers of color, people of color, people who are immigrants, no one speaks for us. They only speak for a few rich men because a few rich men control the political process and it's run to their benefit, to our detriment. 
and the American labor leadership not only do not challenge this, they're junior partners in it. They are the junior partners in it to get a few scraps of patronage. Woo, man. (laughs) Woo, Mr. Butler. Wow, all this great information. I appreciate you so much. I appreciate you so much. And again, I will say, Everybody, again, one more time, make sure you get this book by Gregory A. Butler, Disunited Brotherhoods, Race, Racketeering, and the Fall of New York Construction Unions. Right here. Again, say it one more time. Here's the book. Mr. Butler, we're going to definitely do a part two to this. The people need it. I need it. Union brothers need it. Oh, union, union women need it. We, we, we all need this information that you have and you know i don't want this to go to waste so i appreciate you for coming on here thanks to everybody listening to it's just different with ty again make sure you like and subscribe to the channel and hit the notification bell mr butler until again my friend have a blessed evening thank you and likewise yes sir see you later thank you